Is there a book you'd really love for me to read on the Sleepy Bookshelf? Go to our website at sleepybookshelf.com to submit your ideas and vote on upcoming books. Good evening and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth your host, and it is lovely to have you here with me, because tonight we'll be returning again to the lighthouse. But before that, let's take some time to unwind and relax. Take a deep breath in, and a long slow exhale. Gently close your eyes and take another nice big breath in. Slowly breathe out again and start to feel your body relax. Keep breathing deeply and on the next slow exhale Allow yourself to fully arrive into your body, into this moment, and into your breath. Now find a natural breath for you and just be here. Leave behind all the stresses of the day and any thoughts or worries of what you need to do tomorrow. Gift yourself this time for you while I recap on the last episode. Last time, we jumped back to Lily and Mr. Banks before they went on their walk around the garden. They had briefly discussed Mr. Ramsey's unusual temperament and Lily was about to comment on Mrs. Ramsey when she saw the odd, loving gaze in Mr. Banks' eyes as he stared at the other woman. Lily remembered how she had shared a moment herself with Mrs. Ramsey. The lady had been imploring Lily to marry, and she had laughed at the idea. She lay her head in Mrs. Ramsey's lap, and in that moment longed for intimacy but not marriage. Lily was embarrassed when she then saw Mr. Banks looking at her picture on the easel, which she thought was terrible. She was explaining light and shadow when Cam ran past. Mrs. Ramsey called to her daughter to find out if Minta Doyle and Paul Rayleigh were back yet. They weren't. Mrs. Ramsey predicted Paul would be asking Minta to marry him. As she continued to read to James, she internally considered marriage, her influence over people, her children and their happiness, even life itself and her own often pessimistic tendencies towards it. As dusk drew in, The lighthouse was lit, and she knew then she would have to tell James that they weren't able to visit the lighthouse tomorrow. As he was taken silently to bed, she hoped beyond hope that he wouldn't remember that forever. And that's just where we pick back up tonight. So lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of to the lighthouse. Part 1. The Window. Chapter 11. No, she thought, putting together some of the pictures he had cut out a refrigerator, 
a mowing machine, a gentleman in evening dress. Children never forget. For this reason, it was so important what one said and what one did, and it was a relief when they went to bed. For now, she need not think about anybody. She could be herself, by herself. That was what now she often felt the need of. To think. Well, not even to think. To be silent. To be alone. All the being and the doing, expansive, glittering, vocal, evaporated, and one shrunk with a sense of solemnity to being oneself, a wedge-shaped core of darkness, something invisible to others. Although she continues to knit and sat upright, it was thus that she felt herself, and this self, having shed its attachments, was free for the strangest adventures. When life sank down for a moment, the range of experience seemed limitless. And to everybody there was always this sense of unlimited resources, she supposed, one after another. She, Lily, Augustus Carmichael, must feel our apparitions, the things you know us by, are simply childish. Beneath it is all dark, It is all spreading. It is unfathomably deep. But now and again, we rise to the surface, and that is what you see us by. Her horizons seemed to her limitless. There were all the places she had not seen. The Indian plains. She felt herself pushing aside the thick leather curtain of a church in Rome. This core of darkness could go anywhere, for no one saw it. They could not stop it, she thought, exulting. There was freedom. There was peace. There was, most welcome of all, a summoning together, a resting on a platform of stability. Not as oneself did one find rest ever in her experience. She accomplished here something dexterous with her needles, but as a wedge of darkness. Losing personality, one lost the fret, the hurry, the stir, and there rose to her lips always some exclamation of triumph over life when things came together in this peace, this rest, this eternity. And pausing there, she looked out to meet that stroke of the lighthouse. The long, steady stroke. The last of the three, which was her stroke, for watching them in this mood, always at this hour, one could not help attaching oneself to the one thing especially of the things one saw. And this thing, the long, steady stroke, was her stroke. Often she found herself sitting and looking, sitting and looking with her work in her hands until she became the thing she looked at. That light, for example, and it would lift up on it some little phrase or other which had been lying in her mind like that. Children don't forget. Children don't forget. Which she would repeat and begin adding to it. It will end. It will end, she said. It will come. It will come. When suddenly she added, We are in the hands of the Lord. But instantly she was annoyed with herself for saying that. Who had said it? Not she. She had been trapped into saying something she did not mean. 
She looked up over her knitting and met the third stroke, and it seems to her like her own eyes, meeting her own eyes. Searching, as she alone could search into her mind and her heart, purifying out of existence that lie, any lie. She praised herself in praising the light, without vanity, for she was stern. She was searching. She was beautiful, like that light. It was odd, she thought, how if one was alone, one lent to inanimate things. Trees, streams, flowers, felt they expressed one, felt they became one, felt they knew one, in a sense, were one. Felt an irrational tenderness thus. She looked at that long, steady light. As for oneself, there rose, and she looked, and looked with her needles suspended. There, curled up off the floor of the mind, rose from the lake of one's being, a mist, a bride to meet her lover. What brought her to say that? We are in the hands of the Lord, she wondered. The insincerity slipping in among the truths roused her, annoyed her. She returned to her knitting again. How could any Lord have made this world, she asked. With her mind, she had always seized the fact that there is no reason, order, justice, but suffering, death, the poor. There was no treachery too base for the world to commit, she knew that. No happiness lasted, she knew that. She knitted with firm composure, slightly pursing her lips, and without being aware of it, so stiffened and composed the lines of her face in a habit of sternness that when her husband passed, though he was chuckling at the thought that Hume, the philosopher, grown enormously fat, had stuck in a bog, he could not help noting as he passed the sternness at the heart of her beauty. It saddened him, and her remoteness pained him, and he felt as he passed that he could not protect her, and when he reached the hedge, he was sad. He could do nothing to help her. He must stand by and watch her. Indeed, the infernal truth was, he made things worse for her. He was irritable. He was touchy. He had lost his temper over the lighthouse. He looked into the hedge into its intricacy, its darkness. Always, Mrs. Ramsay felt, one helped oneself out of solitude, reluctantly, by laying hold of some little odd or end, some sound, some sight. She listened, but it was all very still. Cricket was over. The children were in their baths, there was only the sound of the sea. She stopped knitting. She held the long, reddish-brown stocking dangling in her hands a moment. She saw the light again. With some irony in her interrogation, for when one woke at all, one's relations changed, she looked at the steady light pitiless, the remorseless, which was so much like her, yet so little her, which had her at its beck and call. She woke in the night and saw it, bent across their bed, stroking the floor. But for all that, she thought, watching it with fascination, hypnotized, as if it was stroking with its silver fingers, 
some sealed vessel in her brain whose bursting would flood her with delight. She had known happiness, exquisite happiness, intense happiness, and it silvered through the rough waves a little more brightly as daylight faded and the blue went out of the sea and it rolled in waves of pure lemon which curved and swelled and broke upon the beach and the ecstasy burst in her eyes and waves of pure delight raced over the floor of her mind and she felt it is enough it is enough he turned and saw her ah she was lovely lovelier now than ever he thought but he could not speak to her he could not interrupt her he wanted urgently to speak to her now that james was gone and she was alone at last but he resolved no he would not interrupt her. She was aloof from him now in her beauty, in her sadness. He would let her be, and he passed her without a word, though it hurt him that she should look so distant and he could not reach her. He could do nothing to help her. And again he would have passed her without a word had she not, at that very moment, given him of her own free will what she knew he would never ask, and called to him, and taken the green shawl off the picture frame, and gone to him. For he wished, she knew, to protect her. Chapter 12 She folded the green shawl about her shoulders, She took his arm. His beauty was so great, she said, beginning to speak of Kennedy, the gardener. At once, he was so awfully handsome that she couldn't dismiss him. There was a ladder against the greenhouse, and little lumps of putty stuck about, for they were beginning to mend the greenhouse. Yes, but as she strolled along with her husband, She felt that particular source of worry had been placed. She had it on the tip of her tongue to say as they strolled, it'll cost 50 pounds. But instead, for her heart failed her about money, she talked about Jasper shooting birds, and he said at once, soothing her instantly, that it was natural in a boy and he trusted he would find better ways of amusing himself before long. Her husband was so sensible, so just, and so she said, Yes, all children go through stages. And she began considering the dahlias in the big bed and wondering what about next year's flowers. And had he heard the children's nickname for Charles Tansley, she asked. The atheist, they called him. The little atheist. He is not a polished specimen, said Mr. Ramsay. Far from it, said Mrs. Ramsay. She supposed it was all right leaving him to his own devices, Mrs. Ramsay said, wondering whether it was any use to send down bulbs. Did they plant them? Oh, he has his dissertation to write, said Mr. Ramsay. She knew all about that, said Mrs. Ramsay. He talked of nothing else. It was about the influence of somebody upon something. Well, it's all he has to count on, said Mr. Ramsay. Pray heaven he won't fall in love with Prue, said Mrs. Ramsay. He'd disinherit her if she married him, said Mr. Ramsay. He did not look at the flowers, which his wife was considering, but at a spot about a foot or so above them. There was no harm in him, he added, and was just about to say that anyhow, he was the only young man in England who admired his, 
when he choked it back. He would not bother her again about his books. These flowers seemed creditable, Mr. Ramsay said, lowering his gaze and noticing something red, something brown. Yes, but then these she had put in with her own hands, said Mrs. Ramsay. The question was, what happened if she sent bulbs down? Did Kennedy plant them? It was his incurable laziness, she added, moving on. If she stood over him all day long, with a spade in her hand, he did sometimes do a stroke of work. So they strolled along toward the red-hot pokers. You're teaching your daughters to exaggerate, said Mr. Ramsay, reproving her. Her aunt Camilla was far worse than she was, Mrs. Ramsay remarked. Nobody ever held up your Aunt Camilla as a model of virtue that I'm aware of, said Mr. Ramsay. She was the most beautiful woman I ever saw, said Mrs. Ramsay. Somebody else was that, said Mr. Ramsay. Prue was going to be far more beautiful than she was, said Mrs. Ramsay. He saw no trace of it, said Mr. Ramsay. Well then, look tonight, said Mrs. Ramsay. They paused. He wished Andrew could be induced to work harder. He would lose every chance of a scholarship if he didn't. Oh, scholarships, she said. Mr. Ramsay thought her foolish for saying that about a serious thing like a scholarship. He should be very proud of Andrew if he got a scholarship, he said. She would be just as proud of him if he didn't, she answered. They disagreed always about this, but it did not matter. She liked him to believe in scholarships, and he liked her to be proud of Andrew whatever he did. Suddenly, she remembered those little paths on the edge of the cliffs. Wasn't it late? she asked. They hadn't come home yet. He flicked his watch carelessly open, but it was only just past seven. He held his watch open for a moment, deciding that he would tell her what he had felt on the terrace. To begin with, it was not reasonable to be so nervous. Andrew could look after himself. Then he wanted to tell her that when he was walking on the terrace just now, here he became uncomfortable, as if he were breaking into that solitude, that aloofness, that remoteness of hers. But she pressed him. What had he wanted to tell her, she asked, thinking it was about going to the lighthouse, that he was sorry he cursed her. But no. He did not like to see her look so sad, he said. Only wool gathering, she protested, flushing a little. They both felt uncomfortable, as if they did not know whether to go on or to go back. She had been reading fairy tales to James, she said. No, they could not share that. They could not say that. They had reached the gap between the two clumps of red-hot pokers, and there was the lighthouse again. But she would not let herself look at it. Had she known that he was going to look at her, she thought, she would not have let herself sit there, thinking. She disliked anything that reminded her that she had been seen, sitting, thinking. So she looked over her shoulder at the town. The lights were rippling, and running as if they were drops of silver water held firm in a wind. And all the poverty, all the suffering had turned to that, Mrs. Ramsay thought. The lights of the town and of the harbour and of the boats seemed like a phantom net floating there to mark something which had sunk. Well, if he could not share her thoughts, Mr. Ramsay said to himself, he would be off then, on his own. 
He wanted to go on thinking, telling himself the story how Hume was stuck in a bog. He wanted to laugh. But first, it was nonsense to be anxious about Andrew. When he was Andrew's age, he used to walk about the country all day long with nothing but a biscuit in his pocket and nobody bothered about him or thought that he had fallen over a cliff. He said aloud he thought he would be off for a day's walk if the weather held. He had had about enough of Banks and of Carmichael. He would like a little solitude. Yes, she said. It annoyed him that she did not protest. She knew that he would never do it. He was too old now to walk all day long with a biscuit in his pocket. She worried about the boys, but not about him. Years ago, before he had married, he thought, looking across the bay as they stood between the clumps of red-hot pokers, he had walked all day. He had made a meal off bread and cheese in a public house. He had worked ten hours at a stretch. An old woman just popped her head in now and again and saw to the fire. That was the country he liked best over there. Those sand hills dwindling away into darkness. One could walk all day without meeting a soul. There was not a house, scarcely. Not a single village for miles on end. One could worry things out alone. There were little sandy beaches where no one had been since the beginning of time. The seals sat up and looked at you. It sometimes seemed to him that in a little house out there, alone, he broke off, sighing. He had no right the father of eight children, he reminded himself, and he would have been a beast and a cur to wish a single thing altered. Andrew would be a better man than he had been. Prue would be a beauty, as her mother said. They would stem the flood a bit. That was a good bit of work on the whole, his eight children. They showed he did not curse the poor little universe entirely. For on an evening like this, he thought, looking at the land dwindling away, the little island seemed pathetically small, half swallowed up in the sea. Poor little place, he murmured with a sigh. She heard him. He said the most melancholy things, but she noticed that directly he had said them, he always seemed more cheerful than usual. All this phrase-making was a game, she thought, for if she had said half what he said, she would have blown her brains out by now. It annoyed her, this phrase-making, and she said to him, in a matter-of-fact way, that it was a perfectly lovely evening. What was he going on about, she asked, half laughing, half complaining, for she guessed what he was thinking. He would have written better books if he had not married. He was not complaining, he said. She knew that he did not complain. She knew that he had nothing whatever to complain of. And he seized her hand and raised it to his lips and kissed it with an intensity that brought the tears to her eyes. And quickly he dropped it. They turned away from the view and began to walk up the path where the silver-green, spear-like plants grew, arm in arm. His arm was almost like a young man's arm, Mrs. Ramsay thought, thin and hard, and she thought with delight how strong he still was, though he was over sixty, and how untamed and optimistic, and how strange it was that being convinced as he was, of all sorts of horrors, seemed not to depress him, but to cheer him. Was it not odd, she reflected. Indeed, he seemed to her sometimes made differently from other people, born blind to the ordinary things, 
but to the extraordinary things with an eye like an eagle's. His understanding often astonished her. But did he notice the flowers? No. Did he notice the view? No. Did he even notice his own daughter's beauty, or whether there was pudding on his plate or roast beef? He would sit at the table with them like a person in a dream, and his habit of talking aloud or saying poetry aloud was growing on him, she was afraid, for sometimes it was awkward. Best and brightest, come away. Poor Miss Giddings, when he shouted that at her, almost jumped out of her skin. But then Mrs. Ramsay, though instantly taking his side against all the silly Giddingses in the world, then she thought, intimating by a little pressure on his arm, that he walked up the hill too fast for her, and she must stop for a moment to see whether those were fresh molehills on the bank. Then she thought, stooping down to look, a great mind like his must be different in every way from ours. All the great men she had ever known, she thought, deciding that a rabbit must have got in, were like that, and it was good for young men, though the atmosphere of lecture rooms was stuffy and depressing to her beyond endurance almost, simply to hear him, simply to look at him. But without shooting rabbits, how was one to keep them down, she wondered. Might be a rabbit, might be a mole. Some creature, anyhow, was ruining her evening primroses. And looking up, she saw above the thin trees the first pulse of the full throbbing star and wanted to make her husband look at it, for the sight gave her such keen pleasure. But she stopped herself. He never looked at things. If he did, all he would say would be, poor little world with one of his sighs. At that moment, he said, very fine, to please her, and pretended to admire the flowers. But she knew quite well that he did not admire them, or even realize that they were there. It was only to please her. Ah, but was that not Lily Briscoe strolling along with William Banks? She focused her short-sighted eyes upon the backs of a retreating couple. Yes, indeed it was. Did that not mean that they would marry? Yes, it must. What an admirable idea. They must marry. Chapter 13 He had been to Amsterdam, Mr. Banks was saying as he strolled across the lawn with Lily Briscoe. He had seen the Rembrandts. He had been to Madrid. Unfortunately, it was Good Friday and the Prado was shut. He had been to Rome. Had Miss Briscoe ever been to Rome? Oh, she should. It would be a wonderful experience for her. The Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo, and Padua with its giottos. His wife had been in bad health for many years, so that their sightseeing had been on a modest scale. She had been to Brussels. She had been to Paris, but only for a flying visit to see an aunt who was ill. She had been to Dresden. There were masses of pictures she had not seen, however, Lily Briscoe reflected. Perhaps it was better not to see pictures. They only made one hopelessly discontented with one's own work. Mr. Banks thought one could carry that point of view too far. We can't all be Titians, and we can't all be Darwins, he said. At the same time, he doubted whether you could have your Darwin and your Titian if it weren't for humble people like ourselves. 
Lily would have liked to pay him a compliment. You're not humble, Mr. Banks, she would have liked to have said. But he did not want compliments. Most men do, she thought, and she was little ashamed of her impulse and said nothing while he remarked that perhaps what he was saying did not apply to pictures. Anyhow, said Lily, tossing off her little insincerity, she would always go on painting because it interested her. Yes, said Mr. Banks. He was sure she would. And as they reached the end of the lawn, he was asking her whether she had difficulty in finding subjects in London when they turned and saw the Ramses. So that is marriage, Lily thought. A man and a woman looking at a girl throwing a ball. That is what Mrs. Ramsay tried to tell me the other night, she thought for she was wearing a green shawl, and they were standing close together, watching Prue and Jasper throwing catches. And suddenly, the meaning which for no reason at all, as perhaps they are stepping out of the tube or ringing a doorbell, descends on people, making them symbolical, making them representative, came upon them, and made them in the dusk, standing, looking, as symbols of marriage, husband and wife. Then after an instant, the symbolical outline which transcended the real figures sank down again, and they became, as they met them, Mr. and Mrs. Ramsay, watching the children throwing catches. But still, for a moment, Though Mrs. Ramsay greeted them with her usual smile, oh, she's thinking we're going to get married, Lily thought, and said, I have triumphed tonight, meaning that for once Mr. Banks had agreed to dine with them and not run off to his own lodge where his man cooked vegetables properly. Still, for one moment, there was a sense of things having been blown apart, of space, of irresponsibility as the ball soared high and they followed it and lost it and saw the one star and the draped branches. In the failing light, they all looked sharp-edged and ethereal and divided by great distances. Then, darting backwards over the vast space, for it seemed as if solidity had vanished altogether. Prue ran full tilt into them and caught the ball brilliantly high up in her left hand, and her mother said, Haven't they come back yet? Whereupon the spell was broken. Mr. Ramsay felt free now to laugh out loud at the thought that Hume had stuck in a bog and an old woman rescued him on condition he said the Lord's Prayer, and chuckling to himself, he strolled off to his study. Mrs. Ramsay bringing Prue back to throw catches again, from which she had escaped, asked, Did Nancy go with them? Chapter 14 Certainly Nancy had gone with them, since Minta Doyle had asked it with her dumb look, holding out her hand as Nancy made off after lunch to her attic, to escape the horror of family life. She supposed she must go then. She did not want to go. She did not want to be drawn into it at all, for as they walked along the road to the cliff, Minta kept on taking her hand. Then she would let it go, then she would take it again. What was it she wanted, Nancy asked herself. There was something, of course, that people wanted, for when Minta took her hand and held it, Nancy reluctantly saw the whole world spread out beneath her, as if it were Constantinople seen through a mist. And then, however heavy-eyed one might be, one must needs ask, is that Santa Sophia? Is that the golden horn? 
So Nancy asked when Minta took her hand, what is it that she wants? Is it that? And what was that? Here and there emerged from the mist as Nancy looked down upon life spread beneath her, a pinnacle, a dome, prominent things without names. But when Minta dropped her hand, as she did when they ran down the hillside, all that, the dome, the pinnacle, whatever it was that had protruded through the mist, sank down and it disappeared. Minta, Andrew observed, was a rather good walker. She wore more sensible clothes than most women. She wore very short skirts and black knickerbockers. She would jump straight into a stream and flounder across. He liked her rashness, but he saw that it would not do. She would kill herself in some idiotic way one of these days. She seemed to be afraid of nothing except bulls. At the mere sight of a bull in a field, she would throw up her arms and fly screaming, which was the very thing to enrage a bull, of course. But she did not mind owning up to it in the least. One must admit that. She knew she was an awful coward about bulls, she said. She thought they must have been tossed in her perambulator when she was a baby. She didn't seem to mind what she said or did. Suddenly, now, she pitched down on the edge of a cliff and began to sing some song. But it would be fatal to let the tide come in and cover up all the good hunting grounds before they got on the beach. Fatal, Paul agreed, springing up. And as they went, slithering down, he kept quoting the guidebook about these islands being justly celebrated for their park-like prospects and the extent and variety of their marine curiosities. But it would not do altogether, this shouting and singing, Andrew felt, picking his way down the cliff, this clapping him on the back and calling him old fellow and all that. It would not do altogether, was the worst way of taking women on walks. Once on the beach, they separated, he going out onto the Pope's nose, taking his shoes off and rolling his socks in them and letting that couple look after themselves. Nancy waded out onto the rocks and searched in her own pools and let that couple look after themselves. She crouched low and touched the smooth, rubber-like sea anemones who were stuck like lumps of jelly to the side of the rock. Brooding, she changed the pool into the sea and made the minnows into sharks and whales and cast vast clouds over this tiny world by holding her hand against the sun. And so brought darkness and desolation, like God himself, to millions of ignorant and innocent creatures, and then took her hand away suddenly and let the sun stream down. Out on the pale, crisscrossed sand, high-stepping, fringed, gauntleted, stalked some fantastic leviathan. She was still enlarging the pool and slipped into the vast fissures of the mountainside. And then, letting her eyes slide imperceptibly above the pool and rest on that wavering line of the sea and sky, on the tree trunks which the smoke of steamers made waver on the horizon, she became with all that power sweeping savagely in and inevitably withdrawing, hypnotized, and the two senses of that vastness and this tininess, the pool had diminished again, flowering within it, made her feel that she was bound hand and foot and unable to move 
by the intensity of feelings which reduced her own body, her own life, and the lives of all the people in the world forever to nothingness. So listening to the waves, crouching over the pool, she brooded. And Andrew shouted that the sea was coming in, so she leapt, splashing through the shallow waves onto the shore and ran up the beach and was carried by her own impetuosity and her desire for rapid movement right behind a rock. And there, oh heavens, in each other's arms, were Paul and Minta, kissing probably. She was outraged, indignant. She and Andrew put on their shoes and stockings in dead silence without saying a thing about it. Indeed, they were rather sharp with each other. She might have called him when she saw the crayfish or whatever it was. Andrew grumbled. However, they both felt it is not our fault. They had not wanted this horrid nuisance to happen. All the same, it irritated Andrew that Nancy should be a woman, and Nancy that Andrew should be a man, and they tied their shoes very neatly and drew the bows rather tight. It was not until they had climbed right up onto the top of the cliff again that Minta cried out that she had lost her grandmother's brooch. Her grandmother's brooch, the sole ornament she possessed. A weeping willow it was. They must remember it, set in pearls. They must have seen it, she said, with the tears running down her cheeks. The brooch which her grandmother had fastened her cap with till the last day of her life. Now she had lost it. She would rather have lost anything than that. She would go back and look for it. They all went back. They poked and peered and looked. They kept their heads very low and said things shortly and gruffly. Paul Rayleigh searched like a madman all about the rock where they had been sitting. All this bother about a brooch really didn't do at all, Andrew thought, as Paul told him to make a thorough search between this point and that. The tide was coming in fast. The sea would cover the place where they had sat in a minute. There was not a ghost of a chance of their finding it now. We shall be cut off. Minta said, suddenly terrified, as if there were any danger of that. It was the same as the bulls all over again. She had no control over her emotions, Andrew thought. Women hadn't. The wretched Paul had to pacify her. The men, Andrew and Paul, at once became manly and different from usual, took counsel briefly and decided that they would plant Rayleigh's stick where they had sat and come back at low tide again. There was nothing more that could be done now. If the brooch was there, it would still be there in the morning, they assured her. But Minta still sobbed all the way up to the top of the cliff. It was her grandmother's brooch. She would rather have lost anything but that, and yet Nancy felt it might be true that she minded losing her brooch she wasn't crying only for that. She was crying for something else. We might all sit down and cry, she felt. She did not know what for. They drew ahead together, Paul and Minta, and he comforted her and said how famous he was for finding things. Once, when he was a little boy, he had found a gold watch. He would get up at daybreak and he was positive he would find it. It seemed to him that it would be almost dark, and he would be alone on the beach, and somehow it would be rather dangerous. He began telling her, however, that he would certainly find it, and she said that she would not hear of his getting up at dawn. It was lost, she knew that. She had a presentiment when she put it on that afternoon. And secretly... He resolved that he would not tell her, 
that he would slip out of the house at dawn when they were all asleep, and if he could not find it, he would go to Edinburgh and buy her another, just like it, but more beautiful. He would prove what he could do. And as they came out on the hill and saw the lights of the town beneath them, the lights coming out suddenly, one by one, seemed like things were going to happen to him. His marriage, his children, his house. And again he thought as they came out onto the high road, which was shaded with high bushes, how they would retreat into solitude together and walk on and on, he always leading her and she pressing close to his side as she did now. As they turned by the crossroads, he thought what an appalling experience he had been through, and he must tell someone, Mrs. Ramsay, of course, for it took his breath away to think what he had been and done. It had been far and away the worst moment of his life when he had asked Minta to marry him. He would go straight to Mrs. Ramsay, because he felt somehow that she was the person who had made him do it. She had made him think he could do anything. Nobody else took him seriously. But she had made him believe that he could do whatever he wanted. He had felt her eyes on him all day today, following him about, though she would never have said a word, as if she were saying, Yes, you can do it. I believe in you. I expect it of you. She had made him feel all that, and directly they got back. He looked for the lights of the house above the bay. He would go to her and say, I've done it, Mrs. Ramsay, thanks to you. And so, turning into the lane that led to the house, he could see lights moving about in the upper windows. They must be awfully late then. People were getting ready for dinner. The house was all lit up, and the lights after darkness made his eyes feel full. And he said to himself, childishly as he walked up the drive, Lights, lights, lights. And repeated in a dazed way, Lights, lights, lights. As they came into the house, staring about him with his face quite stiff, But good heavens, he said to himself, putting his hand to his tie. I must not make a fool of myself. Chapter 15 Yes, said Prue in her considering way, answering her mother's question. I think Nancy did go with them.